0: Hey there, Tomorrow's Leaders. So I got introduced to today's guest. My brother-in-law Jeff had connected me to Jay Allred, who is the president of Source Media Properties, and much of his time he spends with one of their companies, Richland Source, which is a news outlet in uh, Mansfield, based in Mansfield, Ohio. And what really drew me to Jay, and and thinking, and rightfully saw so, that he'd be a great guest, is he runs a news organization. In, in my opinion, totally different than really just about anyone out there, any other news organizations, and kind of has gone a different direction and very successfully. A very values based organization. And now, you know, we've seen how news has changed over the last 20 years. It's been dramatic, even over the last few years. Um, he's taken a real different approach with his organization and it's paid off in some really, really cool things that they're doing. So we talked about everything from, what's happening in the industry, to how he's led such a successful organization. And I think you're really going to like this, some good stuff here. So here's Jay. All right, welcome to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader, where we dive deep on all things leader related, related to leading yourself and leading others. I'm John Laredo, your host, and it's a pleasure to be here today with a fantastic guest, uh, someone who I know we will have a tough time fitting just all the stuff that we want to talk about in a in a 30 to 45 minute time frame here, but we'll do our best. Uh, Jay Allred uh, is the president of Source Media Properties uh, and uh, um, uh, mostly Richland Source based in Mansfield, Ohio, Ohio, and uh, a very unique news organization. And Jay, I'm very thrilled to have you here with us today.
1: Thanks, John. It's really good to be here.
0: Good. Did I say that all right? That whole mouthful there? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All
0: right, you do a lot. We know that, so yeah, <laughs> my...
1: we've got a lot. We've got a lot of irons in the fire. <laughs> so um,
0: I know the story of Richland Source from talking with you and doing my own research. But I'd love to just start with just the origin of it. It is a really unique news uh, uh, media organization. I'd love to hear and have you share with the audience how did this start and what was kind of the the basis for it when you when you when you got started.
1: Sure. Um, so it's first probably important to just let your audience know what we are and what we do. And principally what we are is we're a local news organization. Uh, we cover three counties in North Central Ohio. Um, we're headquartered in a small Midwestern city called Mansfield. It's about population of about 60,000 people. It's um, so a it's a southern, it's like a, it's on the south end of the Rust Belt. So, you know, all of your stereotypes that your listeners have about Cleveland and Youngstown and Akron, they they all apply here in Mansfield as well. Um, and we were founded in 2013 because largely when we looked at the local news ecosystem in our community, what, what we as founders saw there was... The stories that were being told were accurate and they were factual, but they were not, in our opinion, holistic and really representing the entire community of Mansfield, Ohio. Um, the local news industry and the local news business is built on kind of the basis of you know we're we're our job is to shine light on problems and you know point people toward what's wrong in their community so that hopefully community leaders will. Re- respond to that and fix that the problem with that in our opinion was and this is why we were founded was that what that does is it leaves out a lot of people in the community that are working really hard to make the the community or the city or the village or the town that that they're in a better place um, and so when we were founded the idea was what if we told what if we told a more holistic story of, of mansfield ohio and richland county ohio and and when we mean that is that what if we looked at the way that we covered our community and tried to make that more proportional to the way that community members are behaving on any on any given day and i think the easiest way to explain that is that we would if you look at the crime rate in richland county ohio on any given year you know we hover between six and seven percent and if you If you just get really pessimistic and double that, let's say that's 12 to 15%. Well, that still leaves 88 to 85% of the population that is not involved in the criminal justice system. You know, there's still a a huge, huge proportion of your population that is, they're not involved in the criminal justice system. Well, traditionally local news has really what sells papers and what drives clicks is crime, And, um, If you give a disproportionate amount of your coverage to to crime and justice and and those kinds of coverage, you're leaving out a lot of people Mm -hmm. that are involved in the community. So we looked at it and just said, what if we changed the news diet? What if we added some fruits and vegetables to go along with kind of the sugar that is... um, you know, car crashes and, and crime stories and and that sort of stuff. What if we took down the sugar content and added some fresh fruits and vegetables, what would happen? That's a great analogy. Yeah. Would people want to, you know, would people engage with that, would they, would they find that to be valuable to them? That's a, that's a big risk, right? I mean, that was not, that's
0: probably a, uh, for, for a news organization that relies on, you know, selling the sugar, so to speak. I mean that's uh, that's a major risk. I, I mean, what so? How did you feel about that going into that? And was that uh, what? 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 It, what was the ultimate result?
1: Well, yes, it was a risk because we knew um, we knew completely that a focus on traditional click driving, um, particularly back in 2013. Would have grown the audience of the website much much faster than it actually grew. We knew that going in, and we elected not to do that. So yes, the, the risk was real, and we knew we had to take a much longer view, and we knew that our work was going to be different. We were still going to do um, we were still going to do great journalism, and we were still going to cover our community. And when there were important stories that involved. Um, negative topics we were going to cover those but we knew that our work was going to be much more about outreach and relationship building with our readers and community leaders than it was going to be about just raw sit in a you know sit in a dark basement and report news off the police scanner we were going to have to think differently than than other news organizations had traditionally been thinking in 2013 and then the result you asked has been fast forward to 2020 um You know, we are combined, our websites see, um, have over a half a million users a month. Um, We're, um, we've grown every single quarter since we launched. Wow. Um, We've been able to, you know, we've received a a good deal of national recognition um, related to our practice of solutions journalism and our membership program has, uh, quadrupled over the last two years. So it's been a, like, I mean, we think that there are signals there, both financial and audience related that are telling us that a focus on real deep engagement with a community, um, real outreach into a community, doing journalism with people instead of to them, there's a, there's a path forward there. But it's a harder path.
0: Yeah. Well, I, well, here's what I love about that. I mean, that's, that's so there's so many organizations and so many leaders that are just, they're making decisions based on the buck and what's going to drive the fastest and most revenue and everything else falls secondarily to that. And you made a decision based on core values and really what you wanted, um, and felt was right. Um, and and ultimately, that's a phenomenal success rate. But were there times that you kind of second guessed yourself? Did you get into it for you know, especially in those that early year, first year or two, where you're saying, yeah, you know what? I wonder if maybe we should go and do a little bit more of the crime and the sugar.
1: I wouldn't say that we second guessed ourselves. I, I I would say that um, number one, we were extraordinarily fortunate that um, our one of our principal founder took the long view financially and was willing to pay for you know to pay to make this happen for the community because he believed in he believed in the mission and um he knew it was important and so we had a runway and um and that was really important and critical for us to be able to do that because i think if we didn't have we didn't have a sufficient runway we were not we would have been tempted to veer from the core values to be able to move to move towards sustainability more quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So to answer your question, in those first two, two or three years, no, I don't think we really were tempted to sway. I think where the challenges came, John, were explaining what we were doing and really being able to build a team culture here where those values were not things that the president of the company just kind of said it, we had to make this thing more than just marketing speak. It had to become ingrained. Like we talk about it, how it had to sort of invade the DNA of the company Mm -hmm. and become a thing that, um, that we hired for, that we, that we disciplined for that. We, um, you know, that we really drilled into, the core being of what this company is and what its purpose is mm-hmm. and that what that allowed us to build a culture that protected that value system mm-hmm. so that when we were making decisions we were making decisions based on that value system yeah rather than responding to an input yeah we knew what our course and our direction was and mm-hmm. um by doing by really concentrating there first mm-hmm. that really helped us especially during those early years when we really didn't know whether this was going to work at all. Mm-hmm. We, we truly didn't know.
0: Yeah. Well, know I, I, a couple things that, that I take from that, you know, and you've got a lot of leaders that are listening and saying, you know, how do I build that culture that's so deeply ingrained mm-hmm. around values? Um, and how do I avoid those, you know, the, the, the desire to hire, you know, a certain type of person or skill set and, you know, maybe they don't necessarily buy into the values or share the values or buy into the vision. Um, and, and people of leaders make that, that bad decision all the time. How do you what would you say to a leader that's that's kind of challenged with that? OK, how do I get that type of culture built? And, you know, where do
1: I even start? <laughs> well, for us, I think that. For us, it, it begins. It does begin with the leader. It, it does begin with the person at the top. Or the people at the top, because you have to be able to define a vision or a value proposition to your audience or to your um, customers that they want to be involved in. Right. So there has to be some degree of of down downboard thinking on the part of the on the part of the leader that says, "I know that we're at A, but I know what Z looks like." And I know, I don't know how to get there necessarily, but I know what my desire is. I know what my desired result is. And then in our case, that had to come, initially that came from myself, but we very quickly involved our team. Um, When we were just several months old and we were crafting the core values of the organization, uh, we brought the entire team into that discussion um they they helped shape what those values were going to be um from the very beginning hmm. um you know i had some things that were just you know, like sort of no fly zones or or definite 100% fly zones mm-hmm. and those were the limits that as the leader i was responsible to, to place on that process but Mostly we really tried to involve the team from the beginning. And if if I was talking to a leader that was trying to, that was struggling to define culture or struggling to grow culture, culture has to be, culture has to be something that everyone participates in. It can't be a top-down thing. It has to be something that comes in from all over the organization. And it has to be a thing that everyone participates in or a large group of, a large group of your your team participates in informing and making real Mm -hmm. Um, and that takes work that's why culture is such a hard thing to build yeah yeah (laughs) you you have to want to do it it's not a thing that you're going to do over like one company retreat or you know a a two-hour session with you know john burrito who's going to come in and talk to you about culture because you're going to get on the plane and leave eventually you're going to go back to where you came from and the the organization is going to be left with whatever you taught them, but they have to, they have to dive in on that. So well, you have to kind of go deep.
0: It's not only getting it there, but it's keeping it there. Cause there's tons of organizations. I've seen them. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have too, that they, they were the once great uh, cultures. Uh, you know, you have, there's a lot of companies out there. I mean, I you know, there's, there's companies that have, and it didn't change overnight. It was like this mm-hmm. slow degradation. It was a 1% change. And I think what it comes to, and 1% change over time, even once a 1% change every month. And over time, it's like, wow, wait, we don't even recognize the company anymore. Um, and it can be hiring the wrong people. So, you know, when it's, when you get a great company and you get a great culture rather in a company, it's, the right people in there, they protect that, right? And they, they're they also, do you find that the people, not just you, but the team itself is kind of protecting and they're they are the ones that are also course correcting if they see behaviors or actions or things that are not in alignment with the core values? Do you see them getting involved in course correcting a little bit?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, again, the sense of scale here, we're a company that, um, you know, on up and down. If you count our freelancers and the people that are all through involved in the company, we're about 20, 22 employees. So we're not a big organization, right? Um, but I'll give you a specific example of how our employees participate in keeping that, in keeping that culture real, and making sure that we're bringing in people that understand it and want to be part of it. So we just recently, um, we just recently hired two people for two different parts of the company. And um, in both of those cases, the lead, the department leaders, not me, but the department leaders decided on an interview process that was going to be multi-staged and it was going to involve every single person in their department who was going to be taking in this new employee and working with them and also involving people from outside of that department. Hmm. So This was the, the, and I was so excited to see this develop out of our department heads because I really had nothing to do with it. But what their goal here was, was to make sure that all of our perspectives were valued in the hiring process, that the person that was, you know, hopefully going to become part of our team was going to be able to have a really transparent view of our entire team. And so that the, The likelihood, their goal, of course, is the likelihood that they would make a great hire and that the hire would be really excited to come on board because he or she knew exactly what they were getting into. That was the kind of culture that we wanted to build. And what it's led to is we generally make good hires here. We've always, we've made mistakes. You know, we've made bad hires and and those people are typically not with us anymore. But where we made those bad hires is those hires came in a silo. I made the hire by myself mm-hmm. rather than involving a large group of people in that process. And so I was so excited to see you know, our department heads know that the team chemist, chemistry was so important um, and and they were taking it on themselves after some cues for me that they, they both wanted to have a diverse pool of candidates. Mm-hmm. You know, it was they wanted to be able to interview people that were coming from different backgrounds and different cultures and so that they built their they built their interview process around that. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that in a company our size. To see that start to blossom and to come to where it's coming directly from the department and they're involving everyone there in that critical process. I mean, you know better than probably anyone or at least as well as anyone how difficult it is to make a good hire and how brutal it is if you make the bad one mm-hmm. making the change.
0: Oh wow. Yeah. I mean, and you think about like with a smaller organization, one person coming in that's a bad Apple or the wrong hire is that much mm-hmm. more impactful. And a good hire is that much more impactful. But I love what you said, you know, and and that's so true. And Apple works that way and many companies now work that way. Apple always, you know, when they were hiring people, they, it was excruciatingly long, painful process where a potential hire, and it might go on for six months to a year of literally vetting them out and having them talk with everybody and then come back and talk with everybody. And it was such an extensive process, but Steve Jobs was a master recruiter and, and believed so hard and I believe so strongly in the culture, um, Mm -hmm. And that's what you, you, it's funny when you say hiring in a silo, and I've done that too. You know, I think about my worst hires, the ones that were disastrous were ones that came in, I found them or hired or interviewed them from start to finish, didn't involve anybody else. And then I was, shouldn't have been surprised when the rest of the team was naturally apprehensive to let them in. And it just, it didn't work. I learned the painful lessons from that. I think a lot of leaders still do that though. They, you know.
1: They... And you have a great episode of the podcast that I listened to when I was kind of researching because I knew I was going to be on. I think the title is Change the People or Change the People. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's a great listen. And I really kind of internalize that in terms of, you know, when you know when you pull the ripcord on those kinds of things and, and ultimately, you know, when you and how you empower your team to be able to say it's time to pull the ripcord. This person isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And that has become even, you know, that just becomes more crucial as you grow yeah. to make sure that you're making all of the right decisions um, or as many of the right decisions as you can as you move along, especially in an entrepreneurial culture like we have here. Yeah. The, yeah. the reality is that we're very results-based and we're extremely entrepreneurial here. So we try, again, this is just kind of from the leadership perspective, I don't want to be a king with a thousand servants. And I think I'm stealing that from, um, the good, the author of good to great. whose whose name is escaping me right now. Um, you know, it, yeah, I have his book right up
0: here. I can't, uh, it's on the tip of (laughs) my tongue too. It's on my bookshelf over there.
1: (laughs) Maybe Drucker. I think it is, but, um, you know, I, I just don't want to be, that's not what I'm interested in being. I'm trying to build a team here and, um, so we really try to make sure that people feel like they have the um, ability and the permission to to make changes to the product, to um, you know, to try something different. And many of those things that are that have come from our staff have been the things that have really driven the brand forward and have led to you know the national exposure. That the brand has gotten, which is really kind of unusual if you really think about it. It's you know, stupid little local news website in Mansfield, Ohio is part of the Facebook journalism project or you know, is you know national, you know recognized nationally for the type of journalism they they do that that really shouldn't happen yeah um but it did and largely that comes from the work of our team
0: that's amazing and i i want to hit on some of that because i can almost you know knowing now more about your organization and and the work that you've done if i didn't know i could almost say what their core your core values were based on what i see happening especially in the community and some of the unique things that you're doing. Do you want to talk to that a little bit and just maybe give, give the listeners some examples of some of the real unique things you're doing that are bringing the community together?
1: Sure. Um, so some of these things are pre-COVID and, and they will reoccur post-COVID when we can be together in rooms. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the ways that we try to explain the type of journalism that we try to do is 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 this way. And we say, we would much prefer to do journalism with you rather than to you, unless you deserve it. And and you go back to that core value and understanding of your community is that most people don't deserve to have journalism done to them. They, you know, journalism done with them is much more constructive. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we've kind of tried to make that real with our community is to do things that, where our reporters and our editors are working alongside of our community members to tell the story or to examine a problem or um, to look for a solution to a problem. So here's a couple of quick examples of how we've done that. Um, um, I think back in 20, in 2017, uh, Mansfield had a, a local election. I'm sorry. 2019, we had a local election. Our mayor was up, and we had four or five, count, three or four council seats were up, and um, so it was a pretty consequential local election. And so what our what our reporters did was they um, they conceived of this idea called they called talk the vote, and they held community meetings in every single voting ward in in the city. Um, one of those meetings was at my house. For the ward that i'm in but they held them in churches they held them in community centers they held them in school gymnasiums and the idea here was that it wasn't to let the candidates talk to the voters it was to actually talk to the voters and ask the voters what was important to them and when they did that what they did was they took all of the findings from those six different those six different meetings plus um, an online component to that where people could uh, digitally. And they put that all into a product project called the citizens agenda. And that citizens agenda was then presented to city council as a roadmap to city council to say, look, you know, when you're governing, this is what your constituents have told us is important to you. And so the idea here was to start with the people that, that city council should be serving and let them be part of that journalistic process. Um, so that's an example. Um, another example would have been just recently during um, during the summer of 2020 when um, America was really convulsed after the death of George Floyd in and, um, and we all know how that happened. Mansfield was not immune from that. We had a um, probably the largest protest on the town on the city square that anyone can remember. know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people came out to protest what happened to George Floyd, which he was killed by a police officer, as we all know. And, um, the protest was completely peaceful. There was no damage, but it was emotional and it was, um, very visceral, the feeling there. I was on the square that day. I saw what was happening and, um, And a friend of mine is, a friend of mine, black man, owns a barbershop. And he came up to me and we'd worked together, we'd done projects before, we'd been involved in committee work and that kind of thing. And so we knew each other and and his name is Damien, and he came up to me and he said, I wanna do a thing in my barbershop. And I said, well, what do you wanna do? And he said, I wanna do a series of conversations in my barbershop where we bring people together that have different viewpoints, they look different from one another, they come from different backgrounds, Um, who want to sit down and and talk about this moment that we're in because and this is I'm going to paraphrase Damien. He says, I think we're closer together than we think. But I think right now we're just feel really farther apart. Mm -hmm. And, and he said, and oh, by the way, I want to, I want to videotape all of it. And I want it to all be on the record. And he said, would you come and moderate the first one? And this was on a Saturday. And I said, I said, sure, I'll come. Absolutely. I'm in, I'm down. I'll come and I'll come and I'll come and moderate the first one with you I'll work with. you. And so on Sunday, the next day he called me and he said, Hey, I'm doing the first one tonight. Well, no, (laughs) I can tell you, John, that I did not think that he was going to spin this thing in 24 hours and make it happen, but he did. And so we went down there and I sat down with, um, these questions that we use when we um, work inside this uh, this construct called solutions journalism, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes for folks. Um, but it's called complicating the narrative, and it's based on the it's based on the work of hostage negotiators. And the idea here is to take people that are polarized and give them reasons to come together and to sort of complicate the story that they're telling themselves and make it a little bit more three-dimensional so that they can understand that the person on the other side from them is different than the way they might imagine them to be and this goes both ways right Mm. so we go down there and we have this immense like this incredible conversation for 90 minutes with all these folks and um and what that turned itself into in collaboration with damien at 419 barbershop and with Um, some corporate partners of ours at a company called DRM Productions. They are a video production company. And our journalists, our newsroom, we spun that into a um, 12-episode series called Shop Talk. And the conversations were about race and reconciliation, and they were rooted in the work of um, solutions journalism through our newsroom. And that's available on YouTube. You can find it, um, Shop Talk 419. And what you're looking at there are people during an incredibly divided. I mean, you have to understand the country's on fire. When we did that first episode, Minneapolis was burning. Wow. Columbus was Columbus was completely convulsed. It's 60 miles from my house. And mm. Columbus is completely convulsed in this. And so we're at that place where it's an absolute low point and what these conversations did and what we were, what we were witness to was community members from all different walks of life, police officers, pastors, teachers, professors, regular people, um, you know, construction workers, barbers all sitting in this, this one um, space talking to each other. We recorded John I think we recorded almost eight hours of video wow. that turned into these episodes. And I can tell you that during those eight hours, no one talked over each other. Hmm. No one yelled at each other. It didn't look anything like what was happening on MSNBC and Fox. Wow. <laughs> it didn't look anything like that. It yeah. looked like community members who were deeply concerned about what was happening in the world and they were talking to each other. And that's the kind of stuff that we've found has become our niche as a local journalism organization Mm -hmm. is to help people convene these types of conversations where they feel valued and seen. Mm -hmm. And then because we're a business, then create a platform on which to ask them to support that work Mm -hmm. through, you know, financially. And that's where for us, that's where we've found our path forward. is look at this and say, this is what we're, you know, this is what we believe our business is, what our purpose is in our community. Invite people into that purpose, allow them to participate in it, um, be a part of it, and then ask them to financially support it. Mm -hmm. And then create a sort of a flywheel there Mm -hmm. where you're continually inviting people into that into that process and then you're keeping the ones that are already in it and hopefully turning a percentage of those people into sort of evangelists for that process. Yeah. That's that's the way that we're trying to to move that forward and then largely trying to be generous with the local journalism industry in general to teach them you know to teach them what we've learned and also to help them avoid the mistakes we've made, which have been many.
0: Yeah. Well there's so there's so many takeaways from that. I mean, you know, you have that's a model for any business. I mean, to, to, to build a business with a mission and a clear vision. Um, but you know, what, what's interesting is that comment that you said, the gentleman, uh, the barbershop made was at the beginning was, you know, we're, we're so far apart, but we're probably closer than we realized. Was that the comment or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was something that it
1: was in that zone. It was that, You know, in the midst of feeling as though we were completely ripped apart, um, based on the color of our skin or or the job that we had, whether, you know, we were a a police officer or a community organizer or a barber or a construction worker, Mm -hmm. um, He just, he had an instinct that if we could put people together in, in his barbershop, which You know, which Damien referred to, and he's correct, it's kind of a sacred space in the black community, the barbershop, particularly for men. And he he wagered that if he could put people together in that sacred space, that those conversations were going to be meaningful and impactful and people were going to leave knowing each other better than they walked in knowing each other. And many times they were strangers when they walked into the shop. And they left deeply moved by the the revealingness of those conversations where they where they began to know the law enforcement officer as something behind the uniform he became three-dimensional in their eyes yeah whereas the same thing happened with the um you know with the person of color that was there or the lgbtq person that was there they began to know those people as people rather than stereotypes and therefore their narratives got really complicated and yeah. all of a sudden they were like oh wow okay i i walked in one way i'm walking out a different way and yeah. mission accomplished right people exactly. knew each other better that was what we were hoping
0: for you're breaking down the walls and then people the trust builds i mean you've got uh, that's a that's an incredibly effective uh, way to build that community I'm sure has it been a precedent have you seen that now start to take shape in other organizations or other parts of the country
1: it it has in fact um, in April late April early May uh, we're gonna do, for the journalism industry, we're, we're working with our friends at the Solutions Journalism Network to put something together where other local newsrooms can um, jump on a webinar with Damien and um, Brittany Schock, who's our solutions and engagement editor, mm-hmm. and um, likely myself, to learn a little bit about how all this came together. Because mm-hmm. our hope is, and Damien's hope from the beginning, and our job is to try to amplify his his, um, mission there was, he was just hopeful that some other community would try this mm-hmm. because they all have the, you know, they almost all have newsrooms. They all have barbershops and they likely have somebody that is a good video production person. Yeah. And that's what we needed to make this happen and to make these convenings come together. And so his goal was always to say, wouldn't it be cool if this happened in Sacramento? or it happened in Des Moines, or it happened in Madison, Wisconsin, or it happened in, you know, um, new Orleans, Louisiana. Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool if other newsrooms felt like they could, they could participate in this. And so that's kind of the next step is to try to help it help the process scale a little bit.
0: Yeah. So other
1: communities can realize those benefits as well.
0: That's great. Well, that's, I hope that that happens. I would imagine I'm envisioning those types of, uh, you know, programs and groups to get together in all different parts of the country. Some of the most, you know, you know, highly, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, it's the word I'm looking for, Uh, you know, volatile areas, you know, that 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 what a difference that could make. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, just the media industry as a whole. I mean, it has changed dramatically, as you know, and I'm I'm. You're a pro, so I want to get your perspective on this. You know, I think about when, you know, how it was when I was a kid growing up, and versus what it looks like today. Um, What have you observed, and what's your uh, opinion on how things have changed? And then I want to talk about a few, you know, perspectives around other Mm -hmm. other areas. But what's your thought?
1: I think that so, I'm 51. So from the time that I was a kid or old enough to really kind of consume media in a, you know, meaningful way, right? So I'm 11, 12, 10 years old, right? We've just, we've just become, we've gone from the local newspaper, which was a dominant media source in, in any community. It was where you went to know everything and it was, it was vibrant. It made money. It was um, it was healthy, largely. And then nationally, we had, you know, there were three networks: ABC, CBS, and you know NBC. Choose your you know choose your flavor, right? It was largely the same flavor, right? But mm-hmm. you know you kind of you kind of got to pick between the one uh, the one that you like the best. Mm-hmm there was largely a a broad although i think people romanticize this that there was a broad agreement on what was factual um, but the reality is in the 70s the you know the there was a lot of disagreement on whether on watergate if you if you study that you know l- largely many of the things that we saw happen in 2017 2018 20, 2018 2019 here, they were they were echoes of many of the same um, dialogues that were happening about watergate at the time well what I think I've seen happening to try to answer your question directly is that the media has become fragmented and there are now hundreds if not thousands of places that you can go to get the news that the news of the day so to speak and in order to if you're if you're focused on growth and volume of like just pure scale. The strategy that many media companies have, have gone down is that they've picked a point of view. And it's the only way that I the way that I've taken to try to describe this is it's kind of created a hate economy. And there's two there's two things that happen when you turn on Fox News or MSNBC, um, or you know, you pick your pick your network, right? Mm-hmm. The job there is to make you feel something and largely they're asking you to feel one or two things. In my opinion, this is one person's opinion, but largely they're asking you to feel one or two things. They either want you to to be angry at the people that aren't watching MSNBC or Fox news and um, to be angry about how stupid they are and how uninformed they are, um, how traitorous they are, how treasonous they are, um, how woke they are, how, um, much of a mouth breather they are you know like whatever we're supposed to hate each other that's the other thing or or to let you slip into a warm bath of your own biases where everyone agrees with you and the world is exactly the way that you wish it was deep in your kind of lizard brain at the base of your spine Mm -hmm. or at the base of your skull Uh, you know it just it lets you just kind of slip into that warm bath And facts don't matter or things that might complicate your narrative or be different than what you think don't matter anymore. And that's where we find ourselves as a country, in my opinion, particularly at the national level. Mm -hmm. And people have a much harder time. There's been studies done. People have a very hard time distinguishing opinion from news reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, People watch Rachel Maddow and they think that that's news or they watch Sean Hannity and they think that that's news reporting when it it isn't the people at Fox and MSNBC know that those are opinion and analysis shows but the reader consuming it doesn't know that Mm -hmm. or many I mean the research shows that readers on both sides of the aisle don't always know that Mm -hmm. they view those what Rachel Maddow is saying or what Sean Hannity is saying they're viewing those things as factual pieces of information. When largely there, there might be a piece of information in there, but they're wrapped around, but wrapped around that is the opinion of the host. Mm -hmm. And this does not create a healthy place for, um, for media. And at the national level, what ends up happening is that along with other factors, like the growth of the internet, like the, um, you know, the way that even things like Craigslist have, Craigslist has blown up the classified in- advertising industry. So all of those things have combined, John, at the local level to lead to a situation where we are right now, where in the last, since 2008, 1,800 American newspapers have closed. Mm. Um, where in the, in the region that we operate, in our county and every single county that touches it, we are the only newsroom of our type That is locally owned. Everything else is owned by a chain which has no owner, which has no local leadership inside of the community at all. And that's not to disrespect the newsrooms at all. Mm -hmm. Those reporters in those newsrooms are busting their butts to try to do great work. And in in many cases, they are, Mm -hmm. but they don't have any local leadership. And um, what you get is this extractive business model that is. It's a reality. I mean, I'm a capitalist and it is, it is, you know, what you're seeing is at the local news industry, the chains that own those local newspapers that cover, um, that cover Charlotte, North Carolina, or cover Raleigh, Durham, or cover Mansfield, Ohio, those chains are extracting value out of those, those communities, and they're not putting anything back in it. And, um, it's led to, where we are today which is all over america there's been a reimagining of what local business models need to be Mm -hmm. and we don't we're not at the end of that path yeah people know what's going to work best
0: and that's that's the thought is okay you know so now where does this go where does this lead to because obviously you know the the media organizations have, have realized, okay, this is a way to drive revenue and we make more money and the more, uh, we become opinionated or, or spin things or whatever, you know, you want to call it has, and driven those emotions in people. Okay. It's actually hit our bottom line in a really good way. So what does this look like down the road in a few years?
1: Well, I think what you're going to see is is largely a continuation of what you're seeing now. I think at the national level, um the the television and cable news industry is going to continue to be fine. Um our largest and most our largest national newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, the New York Times will continue to be okay. But everything below that is in question at this point. And um so it's kind of a dark time, to be honest with you. If you if you're concerned about local media, like I am, but there are bright spots, John, and there are leaders in that space that are doing some pretty interesting things. Um, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of movement toward thinking of newsrooms as nonprofits, where those where they essentially look at the work of the fourth estate as a public good and necessary for a healthy community. There's been a lot of positive momentum there. And I think that there's, that there's real growth in that sector where um, nonprofit newsrooms funded by their community, um, financed or funded by community foundations to start inside of communities to replace really crippled for-profit newsrooms. There's been a lot of growth there. Um, I'm on the board of an organization called Lion Publishers, which represents local independent online news organizations. We've seen our we've seen our membership grow dramatically over the last couple of years as um, folks are starting independent online news organizations in their communities to fill that gap. Those are both for profit and nonprofit. We've also seen, interestingly, and I think you have to you have to give credit where credit is due, um, the platforms like Google and Facebook were extraordinarily damaging to the news ecosystem that the United States had before they were before they became platforms Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and that can't be undone but it wasn't but what we've seen from the platforms in the last few years has been reassuring or um, refreshing Both Facebook and Google have invested almost close to a billion dollars in the local news ecosystem across the world, um, but principally focused in the United States of America to help journalism organizations start, help them grow, help to to apply the iterative methodologies that are very common in Silicon Valley that are very foreign to American journalism, um, to help think about the news product in a different way that allows it to be able to be more fully monetized and more fully sustainable. So there's a lot of, there are bright spots that are happening right now, but we're just really pushing that wheel to get it, you know, to get to where there's some momentum associated with it. I think we'll be okay, but it's going to take, it's going to take a lot of entrepreneurialism. It's going to take a lot of um, trying, failing, learning, and then trying again. Yeah. Uh, Or there's something that's replicable.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, like you coming in with a clear vision and also knowing that you didn't, it wasn't a short-term thing. You had the support to be able to do it for the long-term, which has helped you do the right things that ultimately has made money, but it wasn't the initial number one driver. And if it wasn't going to drive a big buck, then it wasn't going to be something you were going to do, which, it seems like a lot of organizations, not just media, but all businesses, are are uh, you know victim of a little bit. So
1: yeah, we just have to get to a place where there is a reasonably well worn path where an entrepreneur can look at a local news business as a good small business, mm-hmm. and that's where like we have to find the right. We got to help. We got to help cut a path to that. Yeah. Um, as an industry. And then we need to invite the, we need to invite entrepreneurs that are excited about that to, yeah. who might open a Subway sandwich shop, but might also look at um, a local news business as a good small business. Yeah, exactly. That's the challenge. That yeah. we're, that's the challenge that the industry is faced with right
0: now. Well, I know we're, uh, we're, we're almost at a time here. So it's, uh, there's a lot more that I would love to ask. So maybe we can grab another time sometime down the road to have you on again. Okay. Um, but again, you've, uh, you know, you, you've got a lot of listeners out there that are in, uh, all different industries, mm-hmm. uh, leaders out there that have been leaders for, you know, 10, 20 years, some that are just starting in leadership. And the theme of this is tomorrow's leader. So interested just to get your perspective on, you know, what do you see as being, you know, the traits or the one or two things that in your mind stick out most for leaders, that have made the most impact.
1: I'm glad you asked that. I think it's a good way to end too. Um, I think that the most the most important decisions that I make today as a leader is are when I decide to step back. It's natural for leaders to want to step forward into um, into the breach, right? Into the spotlight, onto the stage to represent the brand. For me, what I find over and over again, especially over the next last couple of years, is the most consequential decisions that I make for the business are the times when I decide to step backward and allow someone else into the spotlight, onto the stage, into the breach, on the point, to lead to, because that's my job. Mm-hmm. And I think that if that is what I've found as a natural, it's natural for me to be on stage in the spotlight, I feel very comfortable there. So it's been a learned behavior for me to back up. And what I found when I've done that is that I'm not surprised by it, but I've been heartened by it to watch my team members step up and do things more innovatively than I could have, more thoughtfully than I could have, more intentionally than I could have, more consequentially than I could have that's built their confidence. It's built their, it's built their gravitas in the industry. It's built their profile in the company. And um, I've really learned that it's, you know, it's it's really my job right now is is to develop that talent and to allow that to do for them, what someone did for me 25 years ago, which was to tap me on the shoulder and say, I think you can do this when I was sure I couldn't. And, um, like, so I think leaders, you know, one of the things that we have to do is we have to recognize that when the talent's there, we have to get out of the way to let the talent grow. Mm-hmm. Oh. And what I'm seeing in terms of characteristics in today's society or in today's world for young leaders, I think what's most important is can they be collaborative? Do they play well with others? Um, can they, can they lead from wherever they are? Do you see that in them? You know, are they, are they leaders, even if they don't have the title, are they able to, are they able to lead from where they are? Because that will, that gives you an indication that they're going to be a leader that when they have the title and they are able to, you know, make the decision, they're going to involve other people in that decision-making. They're going to make it about the team rather than about them and that's what we're really looking for here mm-hmm. and it's where we found that when we find those folks those are the people that have the biggest um, consequence in our organization
0: that's fantastic i uh, that's that in and of itself if that's what uh, the only message that people hear in this podcast uh that's such a great takeaway i love that and i'm 100 with you i think that there are so many great potential leaders that can impact and influence our world in a positive way that, that are there, maybe even sitting idle that just need that right opportunity and the leader ahead of them or above them to open up that opportunity for them to, to lead. Um, so great, great stuff. Jay, it's been a pleasure. It's been really, Thanks, really John. fun talk. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is, uh, this is great. We will have definitely all your info in the show notes and, uh, the, uh, links, uh, as well. So people can go there to get some information, but if somebody wants to, uh, get a little bit more information that, uh, they want to learn more about you or even, uh, Richland Source, where would they go? What's the best place?
1: Well, I think if you want to get a look at the, the local journalism that we're doing, um, and get a sort of sense for the, for that, they can go to richlandsource.com. Um, if they want to learn a little bit more about how we help other companies market their brands through our um, digital agency, they can go to sourcebrandsolutions.com. And if they want to learn a little bit more about how we interact with our community or the way that we work our membership program, if they're interested in growing their membership program or they want to see a model for how that can work for them, they can go to sourcemembers.com.
0: Excellent. Good stuff. All right. We'll also have that in the show notes too. So uh, it has been terrific. Uh, Jay Allred, president of Source Media Properties. Uh, It has been a uh, great chance to chat with you and learn from you. And uh, we'll look forward to next time as well. And thank you everybody for listening and tuning in today uh, to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, add comments, all that kind of good stuff. And give me your feedback. I always love your feedback. Go down below, give five-star rating And if you have any future guests that you think would be uh, terrific on the show, just like Jay, make sure you let me know. I'd be happy to uh, connect with them. In the meantime, have a great day. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks, John. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader. For suggestions or inquiries about having me at your next event or personal coaching, reach me at john at